The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Therapeutic Approach to Growth with your host, Brooke Wagner. Each week, this program will focus on interests and expertise pertaining to special needs individuals and their families. We'll help you open up and connect while sharing powerful information. Now, here is Brooke Wagner. Welcome, everyone, to Therapeutic Approach to Growth. I am host, Brooke Wagner. Our goal of the show is to offer support, resources, and most importantly, hope to the special needs community. And today I have with me co-author and presenter Sean Barron, and we will be discussing his inspirational story and journey with autism. So welcome, Sean. Well, thank you, Brooke. I'm delighted to be here today. Thank you, and I just really appreciate you being here today, and I'm so excited to learn more about your life's journey, and I know your story is one of hope and perseverance and love, and I'm just thrilled for our listeners to have this opportunity to learn from you, and I would love to begin with um, you know, how this all began for you, so can you share a little bit about your childhood? Sure. Um, I do remember my childhood uh in many ways for what I didn't have, just as much, if not more, than for what I did have. And by that I mean um, I uh, do remember many having many, many meltdowns. I remember uh, being overwhelmed very easily by too much stimulation going on, even something as simple as re- uh, rearranging a tabletop or... Um, uh, too many uh, lights being on, just many, many things that most of us don't even uh, think about were a big deal for me. And I um, very early on devised ways to try to um, deal with those kinds of things. And I kind of created a uh, self-imposed cocoon of sorts to try to um, cope with things that didn't make sense, uh, to deal with um too much stimulation to try to, in short, bring uh, a little bit of order to what was a lot of chaos in my life. And the problem was, when I was doing that, I was missing out on everything beyond the boundary of the of the uh, self-imposed bubble. One of the biggest things being uh, learning social skills, learning how to uh, get along with other children, learning how to uh, adapt to uh, life's... Uh, situations, things that are inevitable, and I didn't learn all many of those things, and so I missed out on um, what many, many neurotypical children have, like mainly making friends, making um, social contact. I had a lot of classic uh, symptoms of autism, like the lack of eye contact, uh, uh, very odd uh, manipulations of objects. Uh, I had my share of uh, speech and language delays. I didn't really even start using words until I was almost five years old, around the same time that I was uh, 
diagnosed with autism. And it's also important, I think, to keep in mind that um, that was almost 50 years ago, and we didn't have um, the resources and the uh, awareness regarding autism that we have today. So that really compounded things uh, because nobody really outside of our family knew what was going on. Our own family didn't understand much of what I was doing, let alone other people. So we felt very uh, isolated also. So that really uh, added a difficult element to the mix. Absolutely. I bet that was really challenging um, as a family to experience that just, you know, being so long ago and not having the resources that the families uh, have today um, at their disposal. Um, and, and can you share a little bit more about what your prognosis was at the time? What were your family, what were your parents um, being told about what your future would hold? Well, that was very grim, too, and that kind of ties into what I mentioned a minute ago about the uh, lack of awareness that uh, also uh, um, included uh, professional people. You know, we have all kinds of uh, therapies available and today for people um, with on this autism spectrum, but back then, very, you know, very few people really knew about it. Um, the term had just been coined a couple of decades earlier during the Second World War. And so mm-hmm. the um, experts in the field uh, bought into um, the Bruno Bettelheim notion that uh, autism was um, oftentimes the result of a cold parent, especially a cold mother, you know, that old phrase, refrigerator parent. And so right. there's a lot of blame also, even though it was implied. My parents certainly picked up on it. And... Um, it just there just wasn't um, anything really available, um, and as such, uh, the doctor who had diagnosed me in Akron, who made the official diagnosis, told my family that uh, something to the effect of, "You'll wish your son had been born retarded," because at least there's wow. um, help for uh, those kind of people. But uh, with autism, it's pretty much um, bottom of the ninth inning, end of the ball game. He's going to end up. Mm-hmm. Um, Regressing and, and uh, probably in a, in a mental institution um, by the time your son is uh, reaches puberty, and the doctor wasn't trying to be purposely mean. I mean, by you know those hearing those people hearing those words today would say how mean spirited, but that's what they thought in 1967. Right. That's usually what happened to people with autism, you know, pre World War II. They were just dismissed as mentally deficient and mm-hmm. passed away in, in mental institutions in many cases. Mm-hmm. So it was a very grim wow. prognosis, but I'm very, very incredibly thankful that I had a family who um, advocated for me and didn't take such a uh, bleak diagnosis uh, sitting down. They really did all they could to uh, advocate for me and, and work with me because they always felt that there was a child in there, I was, like trapped in my own... Um, Autism, mm-hmm. so to speak, and they work valiantly mm-hmm. to uh, try to bring me out. Oh, that's so incredible. It is so incredible, and that's really why I was so excited for you to be here today, just to share that such an inspirational story from where it all began to where you are today and all of your accomplishments, and I, I truly am just in awe of everything 
everything you have achieved and, and your family has supported you through. And um, I know that, you know, many of our clients want so badly to connect and to have friendships and significant others and to feel that true bond and connection. And I just would love to hear how this these kinds of relationships have evolved over the years for you and how you've, you've been able to uh, create these social opportunities and experiences. Well, that was um, very much a, a slow and oftentimes painful process. Um, I oftentimes uh, compare learning social skills to uh, learning a sport or, or want, deciding to play a musical instrument. You know, you don't just pick up the... Uh, a trumpet and start playing um, professionally. You don't just pick up a, start throwing a football and, and be able to throw like um, you know, like um, Peyton Manning. It, ta- it takes many mm-hmm. years. It takes a lot of uh, hard work and commitment and dedication uh, to achieving something. And that's how it was with me regarding social skills. When I got older, I uh, was very hard to find friends. I didn't have any real social contacts. I didn't really know how to initiate friendships with people. So I went through elementary, middle, and high school to a large degree Mm -hmm. without having those skills. And then as I got older, I realized um, the huge gulf that existed between where everybody else my age seemed to be socially and where I was. I was still battling a huge disconnect and I wanted to try to connect with the world. I wanted everything to fall into place very quickly. But of course, um, like the, you know, the mm-hmm. music and the sports example, uh, you know, it doesn't happen overnight. It takes a lot of work and especially given the fact that I missed much of that during my um, formative years. I had to learn a lot of that uh, much later in life. Uh, even into my young adult years, I was still struggling with uh, the very basic things like um, making eye contact, um, uh, mm-hmm. being able to modify my voice, uh, all those things that most of us learned very early on. I was still struggling with even into my late teens and early 20s. So it was very uh, mm-hmm. difficult, but I didn't want to um, grow up and still have the same kinds of challenges and issues that uh, uh, characterized and pretty much defined my childhood, so I worked very, very hard, and that in itself provided uh, probably the main incentive for me to uh, work at overcoming and these things that were holding me back. And of course, thankfully, I still had the supportive family. Mother, father, and sister really worked uh, with me, and I couldn't have done it without them, without their love and support as well. Hmm. Absolutely. And I, what I love is that you didn't give up, and we have so many clients that are even in their teens and we still hear these sometimes you know from other professionals or parents sometimes that they're just not interested in connecting socially and we know that that's not the case and that they do have the desire to connect they just don't have the tools and the abilities to do so yet but it's not that they can't achieve that so yes i think it's very easy to mistake that um you know, if a child a lot of times children with where teenagers with autism on the spectrum uh, may seem sort of detached or they may seem like they're kind of um, in their own world and they don't want to connect. And it's very easy to misinterpret that. I think they do want to um, connect. I mean, it's, it's a human instinct. We need to feel connected to people. We need that um, 
uh, we need affirmations from others that um, we're worthy, and you know we need to uh, know that we're um, valuable. But it's just like you said, Brooke. I think it's they don't have the tools. They don't have the yet. Maybe you don't have the means or the tools developed yet to be able to uh, make those connections. So they do what they feel most comfortable doing. Hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I just think that's such an important message to share with the listeners and with the community as a whole, that the desire is there. It's just supporting our, our clients to be able to achieve that, that goal and to have those true connections and relationships with others. And it is a human. It's a human need, and it's something that we all deserve to have and is a big goal you know, of mine as a sure. professional. And so I love that. Um, so what would you say would be the most um, valuable way that you were able to achieve that goal? Was there anything that stands out to you that was just the, the most impactful uh, experience you had or, or tool that you learned to, over, to achieve that goal? Well, I think it was really a combination of things. I mean, I know it makes for great Hollywood moments when um, you can say, well, this epiphany happened or I had this dream and it, you know, it changed my life. That's great for, uh, for Hollywood film producers. Um, but uh, in my case, it was just more of a gradual uh, sort of unsexy uh, kind of um, process that evolved. Um, I, I think my parents did everything they could to try to find help against the backdrop of very limited uh, resources. But that certainly doesn't mean that they um, just rested on their laurels. I mean, they did everything they could to uh, find what was available out there. Um, And as I got older, uh, when I was in my uh, late teens, early 20s, my parents constantly talked to me about things that I was struggling with, Uh, most uh, notably uh, relationships. I still... had boundary issues. I didn't understand, uh, you know, what proper data and boundaries regarding different types of relationships. So I had to learn all that stuff. And my mom and dad would sometimes stay up with me until 2 or 3 in the morning trying to explain those kinds of things, why it was uh, inappropriate to have um, a romantic, want to have a romantic relationship with um one of my father's co-workers who was twice my age. You know, all those things that, Mm -hmm. um, again, Mm -hmm. most of us uh, pretty much learn early on, I was still struggling with. And so my parents uh, were very uh, instrumental in trying to um, dissect all of those things. Uh, Sometimes uh, they got tired of hearing their own voices because we'd go over the same things night after night. But um, I'm very fortunate that they did because I think they felt that... um, I had the tools, but it was just making connections. You know, it's sort of right. like I compare it to a uh, a large circuit board. You could have the most sophisticated wiring, and um, a net circuitry network in the world. But if the wiring isn't connected, nothing much is going to happen. And it was just for me a matter of making those connections in my brain. And um, mm-hmm. again, I couldn't have done it without uh, the help of family and some other people. Mm-hmm. No, I love that. And that really resonates with me. Uh, one of the things that we really focus on here at TAG, which is the private agency here in San Diego, is 
guiding our parents on guiding their children through that reflection process and by sharing their perspective and, and their values and ideas and how things, you know, really work and um, without necessarily trying to place demands on them, but just giving them opportunities to think and to process in a dynamic way. Um, all while assuming competence and assuming that our kids, you know, have the ability to achieve these goals. And I think that it sounds like that's, you know, what your parents walked you through that process in a very systematic way to help you have those uh, discovery opportunities. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that, that's, that very much uh, accurately describes what uh, went on for many years in our family. Mm-hmm. No, I, I can... Picture that very clearly. We have have many amazing families we work with here and and are going through that exact process with their children and supporting them in the similar way. And and I just so need to see uh, the outcome um, of all that support, that amazing support and guidance that you received and and how impactful that was, not only in your life, but all the the lives around you, you know, and that you're you're really impacting others as well in a positive way. Um, it was really, really neat to read about how your mom introduced you to the idea of autism. And, you know, I know this is a really difficult decision for many of our clients to make. Um, many of our clients really go back and forth on when the right time is to share their child has a diagnosis of autism and how to do so in a very supportive way, um, in a way that's uplifting. And um, it would be great to to hear a little bit more about how your mom uh, shared the diagnosis with you. Well, I don't remember specifically um, the time or the uh, circumstances under which um, she made that information clear to me. I think it was probably shortly after I was diagnosed, I was probably a little bit older, and um, I must have been probably very frustrated or, you know, having done something, because I did get yelled at a lot. I did get disciplined quite a bit, because, you know, let's face it, um, just because you're diagnosed with autism doesn't mean that, um, you know, that uh, discipline goes out the window. Just like anyone else, you have to... um, Mm discipline your children. You have to make sure that uh, their safety, of course, is paramount. And I did some things that were uh, very, very unsafe in many ways. Uh, And so Mm -hmm. certainly my parents had to uh, intervene. But I think when I was a young child, my mother and my dad both um, did tell me that I had autism. They certainly didn't um, keep it from me. They didn't hide it under a veil of shame or anything like that. They did. Mm-hmm. They were very upfront with me about it. Uh, but my mind, my brain thought in very black and white sorts of ways back then. I, I was a very concrete, literal thinker, as many people on the autism spectrum are. I, I didn't have the ability to really uh, form concepts or um, understand consequences or realize, um, you know, or be able to look at things in an abstract way. So. If they did tell me that I had autism at the time, it probably didn't resonate with me. It didn't mean anything to me. It was just a word. I didn't understand that it applied to me, or I didn't really understand what it meant. I was just so engrossed in doing uh, what I thought I I needed to do that it probably uh, went in 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 my brain and just sat there dormant for a number of years until I got older and realized really what, what it meant. So... 
they did tell me. They right. were very upfront and forthright about it. Um, but at the time, it really didn't uh, strike a chord because I didn't know what it was. I didn't really know, understand it. It was just something that was too abstract for me to be able to um, to absorb. But, yeah, you're right. right. A lot of um, parents do struggle with that. They're, they think maybe uh, some parents still think that there's a stigma attached um, and so mm-hmm. sometimes right. autism has the same kind of stigma that mental illness has. We still are struggling with that, as if somebody right. uh, decided that they want to be mentally ill. Of course, nobody decides that. Nobody wants to have autism, but it, it does happen. And some right. parents are still in denial about it. Some are ashamed, but I don't think it's anything to be ashamed of. It is part of who who you are. It is what you are. Right. You know, and you know, Absolutely. Come into the world with autism. It wasn't a choice that you made. It is what it is. Right. Exactly. Exactly. No, and I love that they were honest with you, and it didn't seem to be a traumatic experience. It was just one of you know acceptance, and and then they were able to support you through that process of growth. And um, we're going to take a quick break, and we're going to come back and uh, continue this discussion, and um, we'll be back in just a few minutes. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. At Therapeutic Approach to Growth, we offer comprehensive and holistic supports to individuals with developmental and acquired disabilities. Our programs include parent education and guidance, speech therapy, occupational therapy, educational and behavioral support, and counseling. We assume competence and believe in treating the entire family system. We offer both in-person and long-distance services. We support our clients in any environment, from home to school and beyond. Mention this show for a free consultation. To learn more, you can reach us at tagforgrowth.com. Therapeutic Approach to Growth. We are bombarded daily with information about beauty products and anti-aging treatments. Do you know how they have been tested? Are they truly going to make a change or just take the change out of your pocket? Tune in to Shelly's Show and Tell with host Shelly Hancock. We'll bring you the top-rated skincare products and treatments tested by Real Transformation Skin Care Centers. We'll motivate you to make the best changes. Listen Mondays at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Health & Wellness. Relationship issues? Anxious? Parenting challenges? No more. Learn how to live your best life. Tune into Straight Talk with top psychotherapist, relationship, and anxiety expert, Sandra Reich. In this program, you'll learn how to transform your challenges into effective solutions, whether it's relationships, parenting, anxiety issues, or other life traps that you struggle with. Sandra will show you how to change them and how to live the life of your dreams. Listen every Thursday afternoon at 6 p.m. Eastern Time and 3 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. You are listening to Therapeutic Approach to Growth. To reach the show today, please call 1-866-472-5792. 
That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also reach Brooke Wagner via email to bwagner at tagforgrowth.com. Now back to the show. Welcome back, uh, host Brooke Wagner here, and today I have with me co-author and presenter Sean Barron, and um, we're learning more about his inspirational story and journey with autism, and uh, Sean, you described um, a little bit earlier in the show that uh, some of the, you described some of the repetitive behaviors you had as a child. Can you share more about them and the purpose they served for you at the time? Sure. Um they were, uh, I did have a lot of classic um, symptoms and, and um, behaviors that uh, we often associate with um, many people on the spectrum. I did do some hand flapping uh, kinds of things. Um, I do remember I used to uh, twirl my hair around my um, index finger constantly, and that drove my mother crazy, but um, mm-hmm. those kinds of things serve two purposes. They're both uh, a sensory thing. Uh, a lot of times people with autism like um, certain um, sensations, um, and um, they also help me alleviate stress in a way. Now, that may sound a little odd to many neurotypical people, but um, hand flapping and you know doing those kinds of things, it seems strange to many people actually is a way of um, having somebody uh, who has autism, they often use those methods as uh, ways of coping with stress. And I was at an interesting uh, presentation several years ago by uh, Dr. Tony Atwood. Um, he um, is a one of the world's foremost experts on Asperger's syndrome, which um, is a form of autism. And he lives in Australia, and he was speaking about that. And he said that um, he made a good point that um, many people, uh, many parents have the tendency to want to try to stop their children from um, doing those kinds of behaviors, um, you know, because it's embarrassing. You know, it, it may reflect, or they may think it reflects badly on them, but they don't necessarily understand that it's not an attention-seeking um, type of behavior, but... Um, they do it for the same reasons I just outlined a minute ago. And then the idea is not to try to stop them from doing it, but maybe to have them go into their room or go somewhere in private where they can do those kinds of things. And when they're finished, they can, they can uh, come out. So you don't want to make it um, something that's punitive because, mm-hmm. like, just about anything that a person with autism does, there's a reason behind it. Sometimes right. uh, you have to be... Uh, almost like Sherlock Holmes to figure it out. But there's almost always an underlying reason. And I did a lot of repetitious kinds of behaviors. I manipulated toys. I um, remember stacking uh, um, marbles in certain orders. I used to play, um, or used to take a deck of cards because I had a fixation with school buses. And I would uh, pretend that they were school buses, um, all kinds of things like that. But all all those uh, kinds of behaviors had um, common thread running through them. Uh, it's me wanting to try to make order out of chaos or trying to do uh, things that gave me comfort, um, mm-hmm. uh, just like they are with many uh, children on the spectrum. I, I can also remember um, in fourth grade, I, I had a very wonderful uh, teacher named Mrs. Hamrock, and she mm-hmm. worked with me, and this is in the early 1970s, um, 
long before uh, much was known about autism. And when I would get frustrated, I remember banging my head on the desk. And, of course, the other uh, students thought um, that's a little strange. They didn't quite know what to make of it. But um, she had the uh, the wisdom to uh, understand that I was just being frustrated. Um, I wasn't trying to seek attention, but I would get frustrated if I didn't understand the day's lesson or if she was doing three-point um, multiplication, you know, mm-hmm. things that I didn't understand. I would get frustrated, and I sometimes banged my head on the desk, and she would just come over and talk to me uh, in a very non-judgmental way and try to explain the lesson until I understood it and then continue with the class. So I think that was uh, mm-hmm. very helpful. But it, even banging my head on the desk provided some um, stress relief because it was you know, a way of um, trying to cope with... Uh, very difficult uh, situation which I found myself. Right, right. No, I love that explanation. And one of the things that we look at here at TAG is how to look beyond the behavior so that we're not trying to address the behavior as an isolated event, that we're looking at it's more of a symptom to some sort of uncertainty mm-hmm. or confusion or frustration. And if we can address that, then we see the behavior start to naturally become you know, reduced. And um, mm-hmm. it sounds like she was able to do that for you by giving you that extra support, which reduced your uncertainty and comforted you. Um, so, mm-hmm. Yeah, it, yeah. Was, it would have been a very different outcome if she had, um, say, sent me to the office or if she had taken some other type of punitive measure. I would have been still just as frustrated but humiliated on top of it. But her approach exactly. was, um, made the difference between that situation and me being able to uh, calm down and eventually get with the uh, program, so to speak. Exactly. No, I love that example. And I just think that it's so important for people to be aware of that if you're just addressing it at a behavioral level, you're not really help supporting the individual get to the root of the problem. And right. Uh, right. that's really, really important. Um, one of the things I love most about your story is your journey through writing your first book with your mom. Uh, there's mm-hmm. a boy, a boy in here emerging from the bonds of autism, and uh, you stated through this process that your awareness level started to change, and you started to see very clearly how your actions and behaviors affected other people, and that created a lot of guilt and a lot of anger towards yourself uh, because you never intended mm-hmm. to hurt people. Um, and it, it sounds like um, writing the book was such a therapeutic experience for you and really impressive that you went through that process with your mom. And I'd love to hear just a little bit more about that process. Sure. Um, there was a, a period of time before I started writing the book, um, several years, in fact, that um, I did go through that uh, guilt, uh, a tremendous amount of self-hatred uh, as you alluded to a moment ago, because my awareness level had increased. And with it came the realization that um, my behaviors and actions of my childhood didn't exist in a vacuum. Um, Not only did uh, they create uh, a lot of challenges in our family, but I I became painfully aware of what the challenges were and how they affected uh, other people in the family, and even other people outside of the family. Um, like um, when we lived in California for a while, my parents were in the music business, and I uh, got very angry with um, some of the people they worked with because um, they didn't uh, 
adhere to my um, very unrealistic expectations. I was starting to emerge from autism then, and I just wanted everything at once. I wanted, uh, you know, friends. I wanted everything to fall into place. And when it didn't, I that created a, a lot of uh, anger and really um, damaged my already very fragile uh, self-esteem. So I uh, carried around a lot of anger and a lot of guilt during those um, years growing up, and um, it carried over into my adult years as well because. Um, I uh, was painfully aware of um, what uh, uh, what I had done and how it impacted other people. And this isn't an exact parallel, but to me it's almost akin to um, if you're in a car accident and you're in a coma, you, know, you don't realize what, what happened. You don't remember mm-hmm. that when you come out, when you emerge from the coma, and then somebody tells you, well, about the car accident, and then you learn that you, that you killed somebody. I mean, you obviously have a tremendous amount of um, guilt and feel horrible about the situation because mm-hmm. your actions uh, are responsible for that person's death. Now, I'm certainly not alluding to the, um, my autism having been that dramatic, but you can kind of see, I think, the parallels there. After I, my awareness level increased and my brain started to, uh, or I guess I started to retrain my brain and have it work in different ways. Mm-hmm. It dawned on me uh, over time how my behaviors and my challenges had affected other people and, and that led to a lot of uh, a lot of guilt and a lot of um, anger and a lot of uh, suicidal thoughts and things, all those kinds of dark things. And then having written the book, well, it gave me an opportunity um, to channel a lot of those feelings and to really um, print what um, I was going through and why. And led to a level of understanding that um, wasn't there before. And I think in that process, it helped um, me absolve myself of a lot of those uh, kinds of uh, very negative feelings. So it was very healing uh, to uh, have mm-hmm. to have written it and also to have it in print, so they can be a vehicle by uh, which to help other people. And I hope it has. Oh, that's wonderful. I love that. And I think that you really pushed through and persevered through those challenges and and had a healing experience. And I think that's just, you know, very much worth the, the challenges to go through that. And um, I'd love to you talk a little bit about your other book, um, Unwritten Rules of Social Relationships, Decoding Social Mysteries Through the Unique Perspectives of Autism. Uh, let's talk a little bit about the focus of this book. Sure. That um, is the second book that I co-wrote with Dr. Temple Grandin mm-hmm. is um, a little bit uh, autobiographical, but also sort of a, a resource book, too. Uh, it, we uh, share our own experiences um, having dealt with autism, but also use it as a framework by which to um, help others on the spectrum um, understand and navigate through the often very complicated world of social skills. Um, and then we uh, distill a lot of that down to uh, 10 basic rules that uh, we outline in the book. And um, I always tell people that um, you know, when I'm speaking to audiences about it, um, I always ask my audiences to uh, forget that they're new for a few minutes and to try to uh, imagine that they, too, are on the spectrum. And then you know, to understand that uh, 
scared about the fact that these social rules are common sense to most of us, but they're anything but when you're dealing with somebody um, on the autism spectrum. For example, uh, the idea that um, there's a difference between honesty and diplomacy. You know, mm-hmm. A lot of times, uh, you know, a lot of us heard growing up, honesty is, a, is always the best policy. And somebody with autism may take that literally. Well, mm-hmm. honesty often is, but there's also you know, shades of gray. Somebody, uh, you know, has a, um, you know, a, um, a blemish on their face. You don't want to say, you know, point out to them, you know, that they do, even though that's maybe technically honest, but mm-hmm. sometimes brutal honesty can hurt another person's feelings. Sometimes you have to be a little diplomatic and you have to um, tap into the shades of gray instead of always looking at the black and white. So that's one of the things that... Um, we mm-hmm. talk about in the book, the idea that many times uh, people with autism or Asperger's syndrome can be brutally honest and can, without, you know, they think that they're being helpful, but they may end up hurting somebody else's feelings and not realizing it. And that could be a real big uh, turnoff. So we try to uh, engage the reader in some of these uh, nuanced rules and you know, they seem like common sense, but when you really uh, take them apart and examine them a little bit, uh, you can see very quickly that they can be rather complex, uh, especially when you're dealing with somebody um, who has autism and tends to look at the world in very black and white, uh, either or kinds of ways. So the book is really, uh, we use a lot of our own experiences, um, and Temple um, uses some research uh, to... Um, try to make the rules easier, more digestible for um, people who have autism and who are struggling with um, social uh, skills and uh, try to make it a little easier for them to uh, understand some of these things. Oh, that's wonderful. Oh, that's wonderful. And it sounds like they're very tangible um, and meaningful examples and real life examples that you both have experienced. And, and you're, you know, right on that it is, uh, you know, these are hard things. They sound simple, but they're complex and they're dynamic and they do require a lot of thinking and processing to make these discoveries. So I think they're really important sure. things to share um, with the community mm-hmm. and, um, and very valid and, and relevant um, so um, with that, we're going to take a quick break, and I'd love to come back and talk a little bit more about um, what your experience was like working with Dr. Grandin. She's such an inspiration as well, and um, we need to hear um, what that experience was like. So with that, we'll be back in a few minutes. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Transformational healing includes energy medicine as well as hands-on healing. Tune in every week to Transformational Healing with Dr. Bonnie Morrow. If you want to know more about the business and science of energy fields, chakras, and the medical and spiritual community, join our expert guests as we work together to bring you closer to your personal health vision. Transformational Healing is heard live every Thursday at 12 noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. 
At Therapeutic Approach to Growth, we offer comprehensive and holistic supports to individuals with developmental and acquired disabilities. Our programs include parent education and guidance, speech therapy, occupational therapy, educational and behavioral support, and counseling. We assume competence and believe in treating the entire family system. We offer both in-person and long-distance services. We support our clients in any environment, from home to school and beyond. Mention this show for a free consultation. To learn more, you can reach us at tagforgrowth.com. Therapeutic Approach to Growth. Biohacking for Health is working with your individual biology to gain access to and control over the systems within your body. It allows you to explore your biology and improve health and wellness. Each of us has unique genetic profiles and physiology that require individualized approaches. On Biohacking for Optimal Health, Dr. Daniel Stickler and his expert guests provide a roadmap to navigate the world of biohacking human potential. Tune in every Thursday at noon Eastern Time, 9 a.m. Pacific, on Voice America Health and Wellness. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. You are listening to Therapeutic Approach to Growth. To reach the show today, please call 1 866 472 5792. That's 1 866 472 5792. You may also reach Brooke Wagner via email to bwagner at tagforgrowth.com. Now back to the show. Welcome back. i host, Brooke Wagner, here. And today I have with me co-author and presenter, Sean Barron. And we're discussing his inspirational story and journey with autism. And um, just right before the break, we were talking about the book you wrote with Dr. Temple Grandin. And I would love to hear um, a little bit about that experience, what it was like working with her. Well, it, it's kind of a funny uh, situation because um, it's one of those books that... Um, really didn't uh, come together on an even uh, keel in a way because um, we never actually collaborated, unlike uh, the first book I wrote with my mother, in which um, uh, we were very proactive uh, with each other and we uh, often met and you know, went over each other's notes. With Tem- Temple Grandin, I didn't ever actually uh, meet her in person, not once. She um, lives in uh, Colorado, and I live uh, here in, in the Youngstown, Ohio area. And, you know, we didn't uh, actually uh, sit down. We never compared notes. We never talked to each other over the phone. I, I did my part, um, and she did hers, and I had no idea, even if she was actually writing, because she's a very busy person. I, at the time, I didn't even know if she was writing anything, let alone what the content was. Mm-hmm. And so that was a, a bit of a challenge for Future Horizons, the publishing company. And so they brought on board a third person um, who kind of worked with both of us uh, and really tried to put the book in a, um, in a uh, order that uh, would make sense, that uh, you know, tried to assemble it so that um, it would be easy to read and also um, flow well. So they had to get a third mm-hmm. person on board to kind of synthesize uh everything that we'd written and put it all together in a, a cogent, um, coherent manner. So it okay. was interesting because um, Temple and I never did uh, actually uh, speak to each other. In fact, 
uh, I didn't. I never read one word of what she'd written until the book was actually published. Uh, how interesting! How interesting! I think that <laughs> you both are such inspirational adults, and um, your stories are so powerful that it makes sense that you came together. Um, and both your stories, you know, came together for this book, and um, that is a very interesting way to 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 create a book. But um, it's neat that you both were able to contribute in such a meaningful way um, to have that final yeah, I product. I think our, um, Temple and I are very, very different from each other. Um, I think that uh, ended up uh, working in the book's favor because um, mm-hmm. you know, you know, readers can get a very, two very different points of view on the same, on the same uh, topic. And so I, I think uh, in the end, it really uh, served us well that, um, that mm-hmm. you know, we uh, collaborated the way we did or lack thereof. <laughs> Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. It does. And um, I understand you're also writing a third book now. Uh, can you share a little bit about what the focus of that book is going to be? Well, the third book um, I've finished. Uh, I'm now in the process of uh, trying to find a literary agent to um, represent it. Uh, and um, I'm hoping that uh, I can get it published this year. But, you know, I've been uh, really putting um, you know, a lot of, out of effort into... Um, into making that happen. The third book um, is um, really has no relationship to autism. Um, the third book I've written, I've uh, uh, titled it uh, "Handshake is More Powerful Than a Fist," and it's about mm. the, uh, the civil rights movement uh, in this country uh, in the 1950s and 60s. Um, this uh, source of inspiration uh, for that project was having gone several times on a uh, traveling um, American history journey called Sojourn to the Past. And okay. a very dear friend of mine named Jeff Steinberg, uh, who's based in the San Francisco area, started the program about 17 years ago. And they take um, mainly high school students, their teachers, and other people through the Deep South, you know, Alabama, Georgia, Mississippi, uh, uh, Nashville, Tennessee, and in Little Rock, Arkansas, where the civil rights movement really uh, was pivotal. And they meet uh, people who um, uh, changed our country for the better, in my opinion. People who, um, you know, put their lives on the line so that black people had the right to vote. And mm-hmm. I knew almost nothing about the civil rights movement until, you know, the last five or six years when I went on the trip myself. And so I realized that... Um, that part of our history was sorely lacking in most mm-hmm. um, history books, and so did um, Jeff, and that's part of what inspired him to uh, start the program in the first place. And so we take bus trips uh, and then meet and hear from uh, people who changed our history for the better, and then the students um, are challenged to... Uh, take the lessons from the past, the very painful but yet redemptive lessons from that time, and apply them to themselves. And so the Mm -hmm. idea is to try to encourage students and adults to tap into uh, something greater than themselves and to um, be more socially uh, aware and and, um, fight for um, for fairness and justice and not Mm -hmm. be um, silent witnesses if they see injustices Mm -hmm. going on. And certainly those lessons from uh, the past are very applicable today. That's part of what um, motivated me to continue with this book is the fact that um, so much of what happened 50 years ago 
is still playing out today, although more subtly mm-hmm. in our political system. I mean, we still have the, you know, now we have the Black Lives Matter movement. Um, I mean, you know, 50 years after the Voting Rights Act signed into law on August 6, 1965, why are we still having these discussions? Something is wrong in our society. I hope mm-hmm. that by writing this, having written this book for young adults, that it'll uh, help them see not only what happened in our history, but to be able to um, apply those lessons to their lives and uh, become you know, more socially, more aware of people, socially responsible and caring uh, people. Mm-hmm. That's really what uh, what we need. Absolutely, absolutely. I love that, and I can and really see the value in it in the current state of of our society today. And you know, I think that it's very relevant to what young adults and teens are experiencing right now um, with bullying mm-hmm. and you know just just the negativity um, that's out there. And um, I can see how we can really learn from the past and and have that awareness and that that real life connection and and really value that opportunity to have a shift in your thought process and awareness. So, um, yeah. that's, and it all starts sense. with language. It all starts with, yeah. um, you know, violent language. Um, mm-hmm. and that's one of the first lessons they learn on, on the journey. Um, it starts with mm-hmm. violent language. Um, you, you, um, vilify a group you, you, mm-hmm. that makes them less than human, it elevates you to a false sense of, uh, superiority. And that justifies doing terrible things. To, mm-hmm. Um, Mm-hmm. And, you know, you, history is rife with examples. Um, the the uh, genocide in Rwanda, um, mm-hmm. killing six million Jews during World War II, I and mean, uh, the list goes on. Right, right, absolutely. No, I, that really makes a lot of sense, and I think that's important and, and really extremely uh, powerful work that you're doing with that book and uh, something that's really needed in our society today. So um, mm-hmm. thank you for taking that on, such an important cause. Um, sure. I want to make sure we have a chance to talk about relationships. Um, I know you're in a longstanding relationship with Barb, and uh, she mm-hmm. also received a diagnosis with autism as a child. And I'd love to just hear your story and how you two meet, or you two met. Um, she's such a sweet person. I had um, the opportunity to speak with her briefly as well, and um, just would love to hear more about your relationship and how that whole process unfolded for the two of you. Well, I think our our uh, relationship uh, is instructive for um, uh, people who have autism um, because that seems to be another uh, common theme that runs through a lot of people um, on the spectrum who I meet uh, or their parents. So invariably tell me, uh, my you know my 18-year-old son wants more than anything to have a girlfriend. My, um, my 17-year-old uh, feels like he's a failure because he doesn't have he's not in a relationship. And I can relate to that. I've been there. I've been down that road. I went through a lot of time, stretches in my life where I didn't have a relationship, but I felt that um, I felt like I was less complete, less of a person mm-hmm. because of that. Mm-hmm. And um, and it's interesting because um, I was in one very bad relationship about 22 years ago, and. Um, it was one of those situations that moved too quickly that I felt in my gut wasn't right, but I still wanted to uh, continue with it because I thought having any relationship was better than having none. And I was in it for probably eight or nine months. 
and everybody was telling me, you know, so and so is wrong. Don't you know? You need to get out of this relationship. And finally, I I'll call it wisdom, call it uh, whatever you will, but I decided to um, to end it. And um, after that relationship, um, I gained a very valuable change in my perspective. I realized that. Um, I kind of did a flip. I realized that um, it's much more important to be happy within yourself mm-hmm. and be, even if you suffer a little loneliness, even if you're not with a significant other, that's much more valuable than being in a relationship in which um, one or both of you are miserable. And right. going through that relationship really uh, woke me up and to that and uh, changed my perspective. And so... When I met Barb about 13 years ago, I had a much healthier framework by which to operate. And um, I realized that it's much more important to be friends with somebody first, you know, to build a foundation. And then whatever happens, happens. It's a win-win situation. Even if you don't end up being romantically involved, you've still got a friend. You know, what's wrong with that? Right. So being, you know, with, with Barbara, I... She didn't seem like somebody I, I really seriously considered dating for the first year or so. I thought it would be somebody, you know, we could go to have a cup of coffee with once in a while. I'd, you know, we'd speak on the phone, but she didn't seem like a um, somebody I would really seriously consider dating at first. And then it just sort of evolved over time into what it is. And so I think it's, you know, I've realized that um, the most successful relationships I've had in more recent years were the ones that came along when I wasn't desperate, when I wasn't looking. Because people pick up on that. If you know, People have uh, finally attuned radar. If you're desperate or if you want a relationship and so badly, you know, that you give off those vibes. And sometimes that can be a turnoff to people. And so I often tell people with autism that um, it's sort of like building a house. You could uh, have, or a building, could have the most beautiful, um, you know, most ostentatious uh, design in the world. You know, you could have the most solid uh, wood to work with, but uh, you, you, you know, none of it will really uh, hold up if you don't have a strong foundation on, on which to build it. And I think relationships work a lot that way. You know, you need to build mm-hmm. that foundation, become friends, you know, let it um, develop on its own. And, you know, that's really how writing works. Um, you write a book, you know, the story uh, after a while takes on a life of its own. And you just follow it. And I think relationships uh, are a lot like that. And consequently, I've been with uh, her for 12 years now, and we're very, very happy. It's really uh, worked very well for both of us. So, and that, But I think, you know, again, we built that foundation. It started gradually and then just evolved into what it is. And I think, you know, relationships need... You know, successful relationships, I should say, work that way. You know, mm-hmm. work out of duress or out of pressure. They, you know, they're allowed to uh, develop on their own, whether you're friends or somebody, whether it's your future wife, future you know, boyfriend, whatever the case may be. Right. I mean, no, I love that. that I, think that's a, I think that's important for people to so, realize. 
Absolutely, absolutely. And I love that it wasn't a forced thing and that you really reflected on where you were and where you wanted to be and put yourself in a really healthy place to be open to a healthy relationship. And um, it's just neat, again, to hear all of your many accomplishments and your, you know, such an inspirational story and so glad that you were able to share with our listeners today, um, everything that you experienced and have gone through and um, where you are today with a relationship and a career and just so much hope. So um, with that, um, we're going to have to wrap up. But thank you so much, Sean, again, for being here today. And um, we've really appreciated your insight. And um, we'll be back next Tuesday live at 11 o'clock Pacific Standard Time. And uh, hope everybody has a wonderful day. Thanks again, Sean. Thank you for having me. Have a wonderful day. Thanks. Thank you again for listening. Be sure to tune in to Therapeutic Approach to Growth and join Brooke Wagner again every Tuesday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time and 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Have a great week. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.